Okay, uh, Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52. Let's turn there. Just, I, I don't think they would mind me sharing. Um, I don't think they would mind me sharing. Does anybody remember what we talked about last week? Does anybody remember what we kind of led with as far as our introduction goes? What are some of those things in life? Remember what we talked about? Anybody? Yes. Yes, exactly. There's events in life, right, where there's the day before that moment and the day after that moment, okay? Um, I talked with uh, Kirby and Betty this week, and they lost a grandbaby. Um, three days old. Um, it was a tragedy. Um, nobody really knows what happened. And I got... I called them, and I, you know, I, I was not wanting to make a spiritual point. Not that Sunday school of last week was the farthest thing from my mind. Um, I said, hello, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I just called to see if I could pray with you. But the very first thing they said was, you know, in Sunday school, you said there would be these moments. And we don't get to pick them, do we? They just come on us. Is suddenly life changes, and you don't get to choose what that moment is going to be. You don't get to choose what thing that's going to be. It just hits you. And so sometimes scripture is, um, sometimes scripture gets out in front of something. Sometimes scripture prepares you for a moment. And when that moment comes, then you're built up and you're ready. Other times, Scripture helps you with something that has been deeply seated in your heart for a long time. Sometimes Scripture starts to help weed the garden, and sometimes those weeds are pretty pronounced, and they're in there deep. That's the case of Isaiah 52. Okay? These are weeds that are in there pretty deep. But God is going to start to weed them out. Well, what are the weeds? Let's identify those first before we, before we get going too far. I, um, I'm reminded of a... I'm going to give a, a kind of a, an ex, two extreme examples, one that's a little humorous and then one that's very real. There was a story that Ronald Reagan used to tell on the campaign trail. It was about his high school football team. He told the story with so many different versions and variations and shades he told the story applying it to so many different states and municipalities and uh, different um, situations that the story became an incredibly flexible thing in his political arsenal. He must have told the story a hundred times or more. His official biographer, the biographer that the family commissioned to tell the life story of Ronald Reagan, concluded that the story never happened. It was an event that he'd made up in his mind, and whether he was deliberately lying by the time he was campaigning for president, I don't know. I have known people, and you have known the same, you have known people like this, that they've told and retold a story so many times that it doesn't matter anymore if it's true. It has created a reality in their mind, and that's the truth all of a sudden. And they would be just as surprised as anybody to learn that that's not how it happened. Well, that's sort of a, a comical extreme. But then there's another extreme. 
Here's another extreme. Let me tell you about a person I know. They, they believe that they have a medical condition that is incredibly debilitating. They have moved the family from place to place, church to church, state to state, telling their tale of woe everywhere they go, saying that they have this medical diagnosis. When you start to, and, and their people around them turn their lives upside down for the benefit of this person with this medical diagnosis. When you start to scratch at the surface a little bit, you realize something. The medical diagnosis is a self-diagnosis. No physician has ever actually diagnosed this person with that ailment. And they go from place to place, and as soon as they sort of settle in and people start to kind of scratch the surface and put two and two together, suddenly the willingness to turn your life upside down for this self-diagnosis isn't as strong anymore, is it? And this family just adds that into the victim pile and goes to the next place and tells the next group of people how awful the previous group of people treated them. You guys know situations like that, don't you? Some of you are smiling at me. You have situations in your life just like that. There is a human tendency to begin to tell yourself and retell yourself a story over and over and over again until that story, no matter how much of an interpretation it might be or, an, or a theory, it starts to get told as fact. And you start to change your life around it. And when some loving person comes along and asks you to re-examine it, you push them out of your lives because that's not really up for debate. This, this is a human tendency. We all share this. God is dealing with that very problem in Isaiah 52, but it's not on a personal level. It's on a national level. Okay? The nation has been dealt a severe blow. They've been invaded. The best of their people have been deported. And despite all of God's attempts to send his prophets to tell them to not fight the Lord's will, to come underneath of what God has for them during this trial, there's a spirit of defeatism and a spirit of victimhood that has infested this nation, that will infest this nation. It hasn't happened yet. Isaiah is telling us what will happen. And Isaiah, through God through Isaiah, is going to begin to deal with this constant state of victimhood that the nation finds itself in. They've told themselves falsehoods about themselves. They've told themselves falsehoods about God to where that has all of a sudden now created a new reality. And God is trying to snap them up out of it. So the question is, how does God recover people who have given in to this, knowingly or unknowingly. How does God recover these people? Okay, Let's pick up our reading in verse 1 of Isaiah 52. We're going to read the first 12 verses. Awake, awake, 
Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall, be, there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there. And the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away from nothing, for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually, all the day long, my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice, together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion, break forth together in singing, you, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard." Let's just orient ourselves historically what Isaiah is talking about here, and then we'll start to see how God counsels these people. The people of Israel, like I said, have been taken captive. They've been defeated by Nineveh, by the, by the Babylonians, and they're deported. They're sent away to this huge city far away. The Babylonians are thrown off, and the Persians rise to rule. The Persians have a totally different foreign policy than the Babylonians did. And as predicted, there is a man whose name is Cyrus. We met this man earlier in Isaiah. And Cyrus will tell, 70 years after the exile began, will tell the people of Jerusalem, pick up your things and go back home. And that's the moment in history that Isaiah 52, 1-12 is predicting. God's telling them, for 70 years, you've been down and out. For 70 years, you've been telling yourself falsehood about me, about yourself, about your situation. Now I'm telling you, pick everything up and go, for I'm going to lead you forth. I'm going to be your rear guard. You're not going to flee away. You are going to go to shouts of joy and salvation. What we also have to keep in mind is this: there's something bigger about these verses. Yes, Isaiah is talking about that moment where the people are gathered and go back to Jerusalem. But Isaiah is doing something that they call telescoping. He's showing kind of an intermediate salvation of the people picking up and leaving. And he's using that as a metaphor for the ultimate salvation that his Messiah will provide. How do we know that? How do we know that that's what Isaiah is doing? Look at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And we go on 
from there to talk about the crucifixion and then the famous Isaiah 53 passage. And we can see that, and we're going to save that not for this time, we'll save that for a future time. So what Isaiah is doing is saying, okay, you people, you're going you're to be delivered from Cyrus's nation and you're going to be sent back home, but that's a metaphor for something bigger that my Messiah is going to accomplish through his crucifixion. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay, let's look at Isaiah 52, 1 through 12 now at this more intermediate idea of what God is doing. How would God counsel people who've been suffering under this defeatist syndrome, under this believing lies in their own victim narrative syndrome? How would he talk to people like that? Well, the first thing he does is he calls them to a biblically informed reality. Let me say that again. He calls them to a biblically informed reality. Look right here. It says, awake, awake, put on your strength, put on your beautiful garments. Go down to verse 2. Shake yourself from the dust and arise and be seated. Loose the bonds from around your neck. The first thing he does is he issues this call to stop walking around in this stupor of self-defeatism. These aren't popular words these days in our modern psychological movement. And I'll admit that many Christians for many years have abused statements like this. There are some people who shouldn't be told to awake, rise yourself out of your stupor. Okay? They're really struggling, they're really hurting, and they need somebody to empathize with them. And prematurely, we can do harm to them and to the gospel by jumping to this conclusion too quickly. But there does come a time, even when a person is under significant distress, that even if their emotions haven't caught up yet, they need to be able to say, it is time for me to start putting one foot in front of the other and moving on with life. And, and I'm going to have to fight for this right thinking. These emotions aren't going to go away easily. Um, there's going to need to be some help from other Christians and some focused Bible study, but it's time to put those things behind me and start reaching out and striving for what lies ahead. Okay, So I want to tread a very careful line here. I would say the majority of the time I talk to people who are in distress, they don't need a pep talk. They need somebody to empathize with them. They need somebody to hurt with them. However, there are those occasions, I can't tell you what the percentage is, I've never calculated it, there are times when people need to be told, all right, it's time, it's time to muster your strength. I would say the majority of the time, people are already there. But there are people who like to wallow. They just like it. And there's great power in wallowing in your victimhood. And sometimes those folks need to be told these words. Awake. Stand up according to your birthright. God has done something for you. And you need to start living life not in accordance to the victimhood that you feel, but in accordance to what the truths that God has said about you. So gird yourself up and start moving forward. Now, that's the first thing God says to these people. Gird yourself up. Awake. Wake up. Start moving forward. 
something I just said. He, he says it again. He says, shake yourself from the dust. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter Zion. This word sit, you might want to um, circle that in your Bible. He says, be seated, O Jerusalem. There is a word that means sit down, as in like sit down in the dust. There's a word that you would, uh, uh, that if, if you were to walk into your boss's office and he said, please have a seat, you would just slide the chair out and sit down. But then there's also a word, which I think is the word that should be translated here, be enthroned. That's the idea. Sit in a position of might. Sit in a position of strength. You're my child, God is saying. You're my bride. I bought you. You're mine. Start acting like it. Start thinking according to what God has said about you. He says right here, he says, loose the bonds from your neck. Okay? Um, I had a theology professor that liked to tell uh, that like to explain our freedom from sin this way, and it applies to this verse. We have been enslaved to our sin. We have been enslaved to our wrong Bible thinking, to our wrong thinking. When we are saved, the Bible says we are set free from our sins. Our sins no longer have any power over us. We are dead to our sins. Then how is it that we struggle so much with sins? <laughs> how is it that the Apostle Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, I, I can't get out of my own way? Well, we are freed in this sense. Imagine that you were in jail, and the warden comes up to you, and he says, hey, you're free. And he takes... I doubt they have this anymore. It's probably all done electronically, but let's pretend the warden still has one of these key things on his belt that's like this big around, and he jangles it, and he pulls out this giant key, and he unlocks the door. Click, click, you're free to go. And then he leaves. What do you have to do to be free? What do you have to do? Get up and walk out. <laughs> the door's open. Get up. Push the door open and leave. But all too often, we kind of, we walk up and we kind of push the door and swing it open and stand and look at that for a while. <laughs> it's a dangerous world out there. Maybe I should stay here. A lot to be afraid of out there. What my professor was trying to illustrate is what is true here, that Overcoming these sorts of negative ideas is a, is a both end. God has done the fundamental and ultimate work of unlocking the cage, of unbolting the shackles that were around their neck. But by God's grace, in partnership with God, we have to sort of do the ultimate work of taking those things off and tossing them down, of kicking the door open and walking out. Now, sin is such that this will be a lifelong escape that's where the metaphor breaks down, of course. It's sort of a lifelong having to constantly leave those doors and constantly take off those handcuffs. But this is the metaphor God is going for. He says, loosen those things up. You're walking around as though you've already, as though you're still chained. And I've 
I've taken the lock off. I've loosened them up. So throw them off your neck and march out of that city. God is telling us to think of ourselves according to his declaration. He also says, he says, I want you to put on your beautiful garments. He's going to move on here, and he's going to say, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Again, God has declared ultimate liberty and ultimate freedom. He's declared salvation from our sins and absolute wealth in the life to come. And what God is advocating is that we take steps to celebrate not what we had, but what we will have, you see. And I was reflecting on that this week. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying we need to start a new uh, holiday in Christian circles, but most of our circles celebrate an event, right, that happened many thousand years ago. Um, what our worship on Sunday is supposed to be is a weekly celebration of what will be. We will reign with Christ. Christ is going to res- return to this earth and reign. He's going to bring us home. He's given us an inheritance that's undefiled. And believers, when they get hold of what they have in the eternities to come, suddenly aren't quite so focused on the here and now, and it liberates them. It liberates them to walk away from that which holds them in bondage. It liberates them to start thinking according to God's declaration. It liberates them from covetousness. Now, yeah, there will be trials, of course, but it's a trial of a whole different perspective. Okay. The Lord says... Third thing is he wants us to take our cues from his acts of salvation. Okay? He wants us to take our cues from his acts of salvation. Look and see right here in ver- beginning in verse 9. Break forth into singing, you waste places. What has the Lord done? He has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Now, quick quick little grammar test. What tense are those verbs? He's comforted, he's redeemed. What tense is that? They're past. But what is God, what sort of event is God talking about? A future event. He's talking about a future event hundreds of years before it happens. But it's as good as done. It's sealed. It's done. We, Paul alludes to this in the book of Romans. We've been saved. We've been justified, sanctified, and glorified. Our ultimate step into heaven is just as sure as the moment that he saved us from our sins. And what Isaiah is getting at here is that God is doing something. He, he promises he'll do something, and it's as good as done Therefore, we need to let his activities inform our emotions, inform our feelings, inform our situation. Okay? He has comforted. 
he has redeemed. The idea of comfort is, uh, the word uh, literally means to speak soft words, okay? to speak kindly, tenderly. Okay? Uh, redeemed means, uh, it's, a, it's a slave master's word. It, it means there was this person that was gone and off into slavery. They'd sold themselves. They're, they're, they're not their own anymore. And, and God buys them back with a price. And we know what that price is. It's the Messiah that he's going to talk about in future chapters. But God paid that price. God did this. Um, it says that God has bared his holy arm. How many of you guys watched... My wife says I say it wrong. Pie pie cartoons. You guys, she says it's. She says I don't know how she says it. But right before he gets in a dust up, what does he do? Well, he rolls his. He pushes his sleeves up, and then he eats some spinach, and his muscles pop out. You know what I mean? And this is this is what God's doing. He's, he's rolling up his sleeves. He's about to go to work for you. That's what it says. I bared my arm. God is doing something. Some of us have arms that are more worthy of bearing than others. Mine are not quite so much. If Steve Benjamin bears his arm, watch out, okay? <laughs> Big Steve is coming after you. He bared his arm. And God says that he's doing this before everybody. He's going to do it in front of all the nations. He's going to do it to the ends of the earth so that they see the salvation of the Lord. God is going to deliver his people in this intermediate thing, and it was available for the known world to see, and now it's been copied a zillion times over in Bibles where everybody can see that God called his shot and did it. And just like God did that, there's an ultimate deliverance for the people of God coming. There is an ultimate vindication of the people of God that's coming. God is going to bear both arms this time. And the Messiah that was killed is going to come back as the champion. And he's going to do that in front of everybody. No longer will you be put to shame. You'll actually be envied by those who don't know the coming king. They will be so humbled and you will be so exalted at what God is doing. Okay? Now notice, on these points, there is none of our effort taking place. It's God who comforts. It's God who redeems. It's God who bears his arm. It's God who does all this work to exalt himself in front of all the nations. Then he would tell people who were kind of bound up in their pity party, depart, depart, go out from here. Touch no unclean thing. He says, for you shall go out in haste and you shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you. What, what I think Isaiah is getting at is I'm sure all of you have had this experience before. You're talking with a person who is, for whatever reason, very down, very depressed, perhaps very angry, and everything is bad, 
And have you ever found yourself saying, look around you. Nobody's trying to hurt you. Look at the safety you dwell in. Look at what you have. Just take a step back from the situation that's bothering you and try to look at it objectively and see how safe you are and see what God is up to and act accordingly. God says, take a step back, Israel. Judah, look. Nobody's chasing you out of Nineveh. You're not, you're not bound. I want you to go back. So take all the holy accoutrements that are for the temple, gather all your stuff, and at your own pace, at your own time, with joy, pursue my will. I've opened the door wide open for you. Now, I don't exactly know how to put that into a catchy little phrase. Maybe observe and act. <laughs> I don't know. But observe, look around you what God is doing and act accordingly with this sort of divine mindset. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay. So, how would God counsel folks like this? He would counsel them to awake. He would counsel them to look into the Bible and act according to what the Bible says. He would counsel us to look and see what God is doing ultimately and look backward and see how God fulfilled his word at every specific point and have confidence that God will fulfill his word to the exact point in the future. And he would counsel us to take a step back and look around us and see what sort of safety he really is bringing and pursue his will based on the strength that he's providing. Okay? Th these are the words of God to people who admittedly have gone through a really hard time. Maybe you're in the middle of a hard time and you don't really see any light at the end of the tunnel. And maybe these words could be for you. I'm not pretending that one Sunday school class will arouse you never to have fears or worries or doubts again. But this is the sort of divine counseling that can get your feet moving on a path that will take you uh, other places. I'd like to just close with this thought, okay? Whatever your trial, whatever your situation, let me assure you that your story is not done being told. Okay? So I don't see how it can be told any different. Well, look in Scripture and see how God retells your story. Okay? Your story's not done. It's not over. There's still much more story left. Okay? So get up tomorrow and look and see what God might have for you. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Isaiah 52, 1 through 12. I pray that you would help us to look to you, even in the middle of trials, so that we will not be overcome or overwhelmed by the trials that maybe even you've put in our lives. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.